Hey, Foreclosure Fix family, and welcome to another episode of the Foreclosure Fix podcast, where our goal is to help 1 million homeowners successfully navigate foreclosure. I'm your host, DJ Alojo, and if the mission to help a million homeowners navigate foreclosure resonates with you, please do us a favor, like, subscribe, shoot us an email, or check us out at theforeclosurefix.com. On today's podcast, I have Dan Deppin. Um, he's the managing director of Fusion Notes. He is a real estate investor for over 20 years, and he has a wealth of experience, both on the investing side, but also on the stock brokerage side. And today he is here to help homeowners understand kind of what things they should be thinking about as we go into the holiday season and the best things to do if you're navigating foreclosure. Dan, welcome to the podcast. How you doing today? I'm doing great, DJ. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Hey, no problem. You know, our listeners are excited because anytime I can bring folks on who have real world experience dealing with folks with modifications and things like that, I think it adds a lot of value. And so help our listeners understand how you and your company, Fusion Notes, interacts with people facing foreclosure. Yeah, thank you. So so what I do with my company of Fusion Notes is I generally buy distressed mortgages. So these could be bought you know, directly from other investors who originated them during seller finance, sometimes from hedge funds. Um, but you can think of what we do is basically once you buy these loans, basically functioning as a bank at that point, right? And so, you know, some of these notes become distressed after purchase them, or sometimes they're distressed um, as we purchase them. And so that's where I began interacting with borrowers who are potentially facing foreclosure. That makes a lot of sense because I know some people find themselves in situations where their mortgage has been quiet. And what I mean by quiet is that they haven't received any correspondence. They don't even know who to pay their bill to. And it's been numerous years sometimes. And then all of a sudden they get a letter from a company saying, hey, we bought your mortgage. You owe us a lot of money. Um, and so <laughs> when you think about those type of situations and you think about you being the lender in those situations, what is your thought process as a lender and what should the borrower be thinking about once they receive that communication from you? Yeah. So, so the first thing that I'm thinking about as the lender, when I actually buy in to one of these deals. So there are different business models for doing distressed mortgages. The business model that I use is I want to work something out with the borrower to get them making payments again, that one keeps them in the home, but then I get cash flow from the deal. And then it also increases the value of that loan, right? Because when a lender buys distressed debt, if someone's not making payments maybe for a long time, it's not selling for a hundred cents of the dollar, right? It, it, you're getting it at some discount to the balance. Now for me, I'm located in Colorado. Uh, my notes are scattered across the country, but none of them are actually in Colorado. So I'm not in my backyard. So when I go into it, I'm looking actually from my perspective to do anything I can to avoid the foreclosure scenario, because the last thing I want is an REO out of state, right? So so I'm going into it with the mindset of, I want to work something out with the borrower um, to keep them in the home. Now, you mentioned something important. A lot of these borrowers haven't heard anything maybe for years from their lender. And, and it's absolutely incredible to me how banks and some of the you know larger hedge funds and institutions that own this debt can have loans on their books that aren't paying and they don't even like reach out to the borrower or do anything. So one of the big advantages that I have as a, as a small player 
with less than a hundred loans is I can give all of these individual attention and I can actually speak to the borrowers directly to try to understand their situation and, and what's going on. You said a few things that I want our audience to really understand. He said REL. So REL typically stands for real estate owned. And that's basically when a bank goes through the foreclosure process and takes back the property. So that's what that REL term means. Now, you also said that you're a smaller player and that you have the ability to talk with folks one on one. And that's one thing I always want our listeners to understand, that the size of the lender, the size of the bank you're working with, the size of the institution you're working with matters a lot in non-performing notes or when your note becomes delinquent. And the reason is because smaller players like Dan have the ability to communicate with you versus a large bank like Bank of America. You're going to be communicating with someone who may be domestic or international via call center. And so those are huge differences as you think about what you need to do when you're facing foreclosure. Dan, I know that you also do some education. And some of the questions that we get from listeners are about the mindset of the bank as it pertains to like the holiday season, right? So in your experience, do you find that you and your students are more lenient during the holiday season? Uh, do you wait on litigation or do you see like foreclosure sales, you know, for you guys going on even in December? Yeah, no, um, you know, sometimes the courts might slow down, but as the lender, um, nothing really changes um, as far as the timeline, but really, if you look at the overall timeline, so from when I buy a loan, generally the the loan servicing will be transferred. So the borrower will get goodbye and hello letters um, from the loan servicers so they know something's changed. I typically send out my own hello letter to let them know what's going on and to ask them to reach out and contact me. Um, and then I'll go through a loss mitigation process that usually spans you know, several weeks, potentially a few months depending on the situation. And so like I mentioned earlier, I'm tr the last thing I want is an REO that's out of state because as the lender, that, that's a real big pain to deal with, right? And I have this saying that like nothing good happens in a vacant house. <laughs> um, and so I'm going through all of those steps uh, before actually beginning the legal process. And even once you get into the legal process, the first step is there's an official demand letter that goes out borrower has 30 days to respond. Um, if they don't respond, then you move on to the next steps, which can take months. So while, you know, part of that might fall during the holiday season, um, you know, really the, the, the timeline for the outreach to the borrower is, is, is pretty lengthy. And so you don't necessarily need to like delay or slow down anything in there. Cause, cause the process takes a while as it is. So you mentioned uh, a modification process. And for those of you listening, if you don't understand what a modification process, we did a podcast episode a few, a few weeks back where you can check it out. And it goes in detail about every phase of a modification process. But you said yours is a lengthy process. Sometimes it takes a couple months, right? For you, mm -hmm. why do you see it take a couple months? Because I've seen it be as quick as a month. I've seen it, I've seen it be as long as six months. So help us understand like why yours may take a couple months and what type of information you are looking to get uh, as a lender engaged from the borrower in that situation. Yeah. So, so they don't always take that long. Um, sometimes I've had situations where I'll mail a letter to the borrower and they'll call me as soon as they receive it. And what's great about what I do versus the Bank of America's that might have to have all these processes they need to follow to reach a deal with the borrower I can just make decisions like very quickly and on the fly. And I've done enough of these. I know how to structure them, right? 
So if the borrower responds right away and communicates well, we can get that done in a few days, gotcha. potentially. Um, where it can take you know, several weeks or a few months is sometimes the borrowers don't always respond or, or they eventually respond and you put an agreement together, but then they don't sign it and return it right away. Or the other thing that, that happens commonly is we reach an agreement and then they don't follow through on it. Either they don't follow through on the first payment or maybe they make a payment and then stop. And so sometimes there are some bits and starts to these. And, you know, since I'm trying to avoid the foreclosure scenario, sometimes those drag out, but then kind of you reach a point where it's like, okay, you know, now we've got to begin the legal process. So a lot of that really depends um, on the borrower, but if the borrower's, you know, communicative, then, then it can go pretty quickly. So you said start and stop. And I think that is something that we should dive into a little bit more because people think that just because you make a payment to either reinstate your loan or if you're doing like a trial payment plan or even if you do a modification and they start making payments, but then a couple months later they have a blip and they can't pay on time and stuff like that. What does that process look like for you? And maybe give our listeners an example of kind of what happens to that borrower in that scenario when they start and stop. So it depends a little bit on how far behind the loan was. Okay. Like let's say the loan is more than 90, 120 days behind where they could be in foreclosure. Uh, and let me back up a little bit and talk about the way I like to structure these agreements. So generally when I work with a borrower to keep them in their home, there there's three pieces to it. And, and some of this depends on how delinquent the loan is, right? So if the loan is further behind, generally I want some kind of an upfront good faith down payment. And then I do a series of trial payments, like either six or 12. And then at the end, if they make the good faith down payment and they make the trial payments on time, then I modify the loan um, at the end of that. Um, the good faith down payment's important because it gives the borrower skin in the game right? As the lender, if somebody hasn't been paying for a while and somebody comes along and says, hey, do you want me to modify your loan? They'll say, sure, go ahead. And then they may or may not uh, necessarily follow through. And then, you know, the trial payments kind of demonstrate their ability to pay and then we mod it at the end. Now, if you're in the middle of that trial payment period and the borrower stops paying, um, you know, if they miss one payment, I'm going to reach out to the borrower and see what's going on. Um, if they miss two payments, and they can't make contact with the borrower, then probably going to restart the legal process and send a demand letter at that point. But if the if you have a scenario where the borrower reaches out and says, "Hey," and then I've and I've had these a number of times, I got one in Toledo like this right now, and says, "Hey, I have," um, or I'm sorry, in, uh, in in Michigan. So this is a good example. So I had someone reach out just the other day and said, I'm trying to remember the the specific details, but. They were in Michigan and their work was impacted by some of the strikes that, that have been going on. And they said, hey, I can't make the next two payments. Can we? Can I defer these next two payments and then pick up? And I said, yeah, that's fine. So I wrote up an agreement, sent it over to them for them to sign. And so that was okay because they communicated well, right? Like if all of a sudden I missed two, they missed two payments and I hadn't heard anything you know, from the borrower, then I would try to reach out to them. Or if this was maybe not my Michigan example, but another scenario where the borrower was in the middle of a trial payment plan, missed a couple payments, and I couldn't contact them at all, then, then at that point I would restart legal. So there, there are a lot of different permutations of, of how these things 
can go. You mentioned something that is really, really important is about communication. I, I think everyone who's listening to the podcast should know that if you are facing foreclosure, communication is so key. Even if you get back on track and you modify the loan, on-time communication and continuous communication will help save you and your lender a lot of stress and ultimately you a lot of money. Because in that scenario you just laid out, Dan, if they didn't communicate with you and you sent another demand letter or started back up legal, the, the borrower is responsible for all your expenses, right? And so they, they would be paying for that. They're basically paying a $350 plus an hour attorney, you know, to, to send them a letter saying, hey, you need to pay your bill, right? <laughs> so good call out because because I've had a lot of borrowers who, for whatever reason, will, will, will pay late, will slow pay, maybe legal will start, maybe there will be a forbearance agreement in place, and they'll never quite stay on track. But at the end, they'll always reinstate the loan so they don't actually lose the property. And I'm not sure why they do this, but they're they're paying so much more o o over time, right? From interest, um, like I said, like legal fees, other expenses, and and it's you know ultimately they're making all the payments in the end, but then they're paying for all this extra other stuff on top of it, and there's really no reason to to do that. No. No, no benefit to them um, to do that. And yeah, the other thing I found is sometimes too, these things can be financial literacy issues. Um, I, I had a borrower a couple of years ago and he would send in kind of random payment amounts. Like he would send a couple hundred dollars here or there. He would miss payments. Sometimes he would send in um, a larger payment. And, and at the time there was a nonprofit uh, credit counseling agency. They're no longer in business that I used to use for some of the borrower outreach. And they reached out to the borrower and he, and they, and they said, why do you, what, you know, what's, what's going on? And he goes, Oh, well, when I have money, I send money in. And they said, well, no, you need to send in like the exact amount at that that's on the statement and send it in every month. And he legitimately did not understand that. And so once he, once they had that conversation, that guy was, was good to go. So one of the things I've learned as a lender is some of these issues, you know, sometimes they're obviously, you know, hardships and, and other circumstances going on. Sometimes it's just a pure financial literacy issue as well. We found that too, that, you know, people don't understand how an amortization schedule works or even what an amortization schedule is sometimes. And getting that basic education on, hey, if you put a little bit extra uh, principal payment on your mortgage every month, you can pay your mortgage off faster or things like that. Uh, it's very important to helping people get over the hump of their financial hurdles. One of the things that I wanted to kind of hop on is what is the biggest kind of pet peeve that borrowers do that kind of makes you mad or pisses you off as a lender? When they don't do what they say they're going to do. <laughs> like when, you know, you, you, you talk to them and they go, oh, okay, yeah, no problem. I'm going to send in X amount by this date. And then they don't. And then they go off the grid and you can't get a hold of them. That's my biggest pet peeve for sure. I, I agree with you there, right? Because it's crazy because when I look at our asset management process and I look at the asset management process of other folks who are in the space, there are all these little things that we request the people along the way to gauge their intentions. And people don't realize that Doing doing what you say you're going to do, even in a small way, like if you say, hey, please email me this or please send me a copy of this and being able to do that in the timeline you said you're going to do it 
all builds goodwill with the lender versus when you say, I'm going to do something and then you go off the grid for, you know, for a week and then you come back and say, oh, I, I finally was able to do it. It just shows that this is not as important to you as it is to the lender. And so that kind of creates friction sometimes. So if you're a borrower and you're facing foreclosure, definitely keep that in mind that doing what you say you're going to do when you're going to do it is super important in the process of reinstating your loan and getting back on track financially. Dan, when you educate people and people are, are looking at the, at, the, at the note space, what is the biggest thing you see from people coming in um, to the note space as they think about foreclosure, their misconceptions and things like that? Yeah. Wh one of the things I've noticed from some folks um, is, is they they don't have a good understanding of some of the the borrower behavior. So like a lot of the loans that I buy, these are, you know, sub hundred thousand dollar properties throughout the Midwest. And a lot of these borrowers, right? Like they're working, you know, hourly jobs that, that, that are sometimes intermittent and they're often like paycheck to paycheck. Right. So, so they're going to have hiccups in there. Like payments aren't always going to come in on time. Um, sometimes you're going to have to foreclose. Sometimes people who are new to notes that, um, you know, have never missed a mortgage payment in their life, can't comprehend that. And they think like, as soon as a borrower misses one payment, they should be able to go get the house. And it's like, no, that, that, that's not how it works. Right. Um, there, there, there's a whole process for this. It can be very lengthy. Right. So, you know, you as the lender, part of your job is to try to keep the borrower in the house and to work with them, like in some of the ways that I talked about, and then using foreclosure as a fallback, you know, if, if it comes to that. So, and that the other thing I think some of the new people don't realize is how many regulations and, and rules there are around this, right? And, and they're there for good reasons because you're, you're dealing with humans that are in some cases facing like some of the common ones that cause people to get behind or job loss, uh, medical bills is a huge one. Divorce is, is, is a really common one. And so those are very like legitimate reasons for falling behind. And not only that, they're, they're extremely stressful life events as well. And, and so sometimes investors think of it from the standpoint of, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm buying this asset, I'm making this investment and I'm going to get these cash flows and, and where are they? Right. And, and part of the deal is they're not always going to show up on time. Now, the good thing as the investor is you can buy these loans at a, at a discount. And, and so you can get better returns than you can in other forms of investment. Like you can relatively easily um, exceed the long-term average returns from the stock market with less volatility. You can get better rates than the bond, but but there's no free lunch in this world. And so with that goes some of this friction that that you have to deal with as a lender. So it's, it's not quite the same as buying like a, a CD from the bank or something like that, where you're just gonna get that money every month. Sometimes you do and that's awesome, but not always. Well, the reason I asked that question is because those same misconceptions that you talk about from investors, we see a lot from homeowners. And I, and I think it's an interesting parallel because the same way investors or people who are investing in mortgage notes from an investment vehicle and have financial wherewithal, we see the same type of dynamic with folks who are facing foreclosure. Sometimes they get a demand letter and think they have to move out their house that same day. Like, you know, the bank is taking my house. There's nothing I can do, right? You know, I've seen people, yeah. 
it. I've seen people who get the foreclosure notice where the sheriff kind of does a tack and stick on their front door and then they already got the moving truck there, you know, the, the next weekend. It's like, hey, you, you have options. You have remedies. The bank hasn't taken your house. We've seen people move out you know, six or seven months early um, before the foreclosure actually happened. And so that miseducation and misunderstanding of how the process works in your specific state can lead you to incur costs and miss out on the upside or equity in your property if you do decide to sell or if you want to keep the property moving down the road. So it's very, very critical that if you are a homeowner facing foreclosure, that you understand what the process is, what the foreclosure process is for your specific state. Dan, what does a what does a win win look like for you um, and your uh, in your experience? So if you're you have a homeowner facing foreclosure, you own the note. <clears throat> the homeowner says, Dan, I don't have a lot of money to give up. You know, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. You know, I don't have a retirement account. I don't even have any money in my retirement account. My bank account is, you know, negative sometimes. And sometimes, you know, once my check is in there, my check is gone. So I want to keep my house. I want to stay current. But I don't have five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars to give you as a down payment. In those scenarios, kind of what things um, do you see happening, and how can you create win-win scenarios in situations like that? Yeah, I mean, the best way that that I've done that is where I work something out with the borrower. Where, like I mentioned, like I like to structure those deals with a good faith down payment. Sometimes the borrower says, "I don't have any money for the good faith down payment, but I can begin making regular payments," and then. As a lender, I'd rather take that than start the foreclosure. But that win-win scenario for me is when the borrower says, okay, I can make some payments. Here's what I can make. They start making those and follow through, right? And then, so that's great for them. They, they're, they're staying in their home. We've got the loan modified where they don't have this big, like I said, like five or $10,000 bill looming over their head. And then from my perspective as, as an investor and the lender, now there's monthly cash flow coming in from the deal. And now because that mortgage loan is now cash flowing instead of being non-performing, the value of that loan went up for me. So one of the good things about this business is my interests and the borrower's interests are very well aligned, right? They're very tightly coupled. Um, and so when I run into the scenarios where I do have to follow through on a foreclosure, it's because I've done everything I could and the borrower just for whatever reason wouldn't communicate, wouldn't pay, wouldn't do anything. And for whatever reason, chose to just, you know, ride the ship down in that way. The other thing I was going to call out too, that I was thinking of when you're talking earlier, that that borrowers might not be aware of that they have as, as, as an option. Like you were saying, sometimes they get the demand letter and they think they need to move out like the next day. Um, sometimes borrowers get in a situation where, you know, maybe the house isn't in good condition. There's like an issue with the foundation or the roof. And they're like, I can't, deal with this or they've got other circumstances where they're like, look, I just want to move on and, and, and move out of here, but I don't want to have the foreclosure. Um, you can often work out what's called a cash for keys agreement with the lender where you're basically just signing the property back over to the lender. But what lenders will also do in many cases will give you some cash that'll help with moving expenses and maybe the first month's rent. At, at the next place. That, that's another area where interest can get very well aligned. So that can, you know, give you some money to help move out and, and start, start the next thing. Um, and as the lender, that's very nice because that's a lot less costly and takes a lot less time than going through the foreclosure process. Right. And you're also doing it in an orderly 
fashion, you know, you're, you're generally getting the property back in better condition when, when that happens. So that, that's another tool. Like if you're in a situation where you're like, I don't want to stay in the house, I'm just kind of done with this thing that people may not realize that, you know, they, they can ask about because most lenders will be willing to do that. At least yeah. the smaller ones, you know, you, you get into bank of America, I have no idea what their processes might be like. De- definitely Bank of America or a larger bank, their processes may look a little differently. But there are two things that I like that you just said. One is that the interest of the lender and the interest of the borrower are tightly and closely aligned. They're coupled together. And, and I think that's a huge takeaway if you're listening to the podcast that you need to walk away with is that the lender doesn't want something different than you want. You want to keep your house. They want their monthly payment. And if we can do both those things, then everybody's winning. You're in the same boat palling in the same direction. And then the other thing about cash for keys, cash for keys uh, is something that a lot of people do not pay attention to. Again, when you want to get, when you want to walk away from your house in today's environment, people have a lot more equity than they had a few years back. And so if you are thinking about letting go of your house, the first thing I will recommend you do is one, call your lender and get a payoff. So you know exactly how much you owe on your mortgage. And then number two, talk to a real estate agent to figure out exactly what the value of your house is worth. Because if you can sell it and make a profit, that's going to be a better way for you to get out of it. However, if you're in a situation where there's not enough profit there or no profit at all, then you may want to consider that cash for keys option. Yeah, that's a good call out too, because most people do have a lot of equity, especially if your loan was originated at least a few years ago. So yeah, definitely look at what um, it'll sell for. Because I've had borrowers that have let properties go in foreclosure where they would have done better just by selling it. Um, and the lender might also be willing to take a short payoff. I've, I've done those as well, right? And you, and you can do that in conjunction with with, with the sale. So yeah, borrowers often have a lot more options than than they might realize. Well, Dan, this brings us to my favorite part of the podcast, which is our bow tie round. It's where our listeners get to tie one on with our guest, Dan Deppin. Dan, the B in bow tie round stands for your best advice for somebody facing foreclosure. The O stands for one thing you are grateful for. And the W stands for your wildest or most interesting foreclosure related story. So what's your best advice for somebody facing foreclosure? Yeah. Best advice for somebody facing foreclosure is just to communicate with the lender, you know, absolutely communicate and respond. I know a lot of times people get scared and they just kind of go dark or they're, they're worried that no one's even going to talk to them. And, and, you know, you might try to communicate, maybe it's a big institution, nobody's home. Um, but always do what you can to try to communicate. And then the, the second thing would be to, you know, look at all your options, you know, consider all your options that, that, that you have. Awesome. Your one thing you're grateful for right now. One thing I'm grateful for right now, I think, is this whole industry and, and, and the way it's been growing in, in the last year or two. Um, I know it's done a lot for me. It's just created a lot of business opportunities, a lot of opportunities to help other people and also work with my investors. And so it's just really been been a great thing for me. I echo your sentiments there because I think the fact that the industry is growing it says to me that there are a lot more individuals and smaller institutions out there looking to help homeowners navigate this rocky terrain of foreclosure and get to solutions that are mutually beneficial. So that is definitely one thing to be excited about. Um, so Dan, what's your wildest or most interesting foreclosure related story? Well, I've, I've had a few of them. Um, the, the wildest one, I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it succinct because I'm like four years into it. Um, 
But this was a, a non-performing loan that I bought in Jackson, Mississippi. Reached out to the borrower. Borrower communicated. We put an agreement in place for forbearance agreement with a trial payment plan. Borrower made a couple payments, stopped, um, eventually had to start legal. And then COVID hit. And then that drug on. And then the borrower filed bankruptcy, which that's a whole other subject. And then the borrower came out of bankruptcy, uh, discharged the bankruptcy on his own, um, which was kind of odd. It turned out later he had received some kind of large payout or settlement from somewhere. So he had to come out of bankruptcy to get that. Started foreclosure again. Borrowers showed up in court, basically told a lot of lies that he wasn't responsible for the debt and somehow kind of snowed the judge and lost the, lost the foreclosure hearing. My attorney was able to get another... I actually get like a trial set up and he had to submit this motion claiming like a miscarriage of justice, blah, blah, blah. And then asked if I could show up. So I had to fly to Jackson, Mississippi to attend court. That's the first time I've ever done it. Like in person, went through the entire case and all the records, information from the bankruptcy where the borrower had uh, acknowledged the debt multiple times in the forbearance agreement, the bankruptcy and other things. And then the borrower took the stand and said that we had restructured the loan and knocked the balance down to two to $6,000. And he had paid that off, which none of that happened. Um, it was, it was completely crazy. Like he was just spewing all kinds of stuff, like from left field. I was like, what is going on? So my attorney asked him, he said, well, you know, do you have any documentation for any of this? And his response said, well, I lost it all in the kitchen fire. And so then I fortunately won this one. Um, and then there was the whole process of doing the eviction, which actually just got processed a couple days ago, although the borrower had left by then. So now I'm in the process of dealing with this REO and figuring out uh, what I've got and, and what to do with the property. They also left about three cars behind, which actually look like decent cars, but they're covered in leaves. So they've been sitting. So it's, it's just not quite over yet, but that's definitely one of my, one of my strangest ones that, that I've ever had. That is definitely wild for sure. Uh, the question I have for you is, was there really a kitchen fire? So are you, are you dealing with a fire damaged house? Yeah. So so earlier, this maybe like two years ago, he, he wasn't paying insurance. So I had forced placed insurance in place and there was a forced placed insurance claim through the, the loan servicer. So there, there was a kitchen fire, um, but then the damage had been repaired. So... Gotcha. Well, and just so our listeners know, that forced place insurance is basically what a lender puts on a property if the homeowner stops paying their homeowner's insurance premium. Um, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I think the information you share will help a ton of homeowners. Do us a favor and let our listeners know where they can find you, how to stay in contact with you, how to follow your journey um, moving forward. Yeah, so you can find me at, at uh, fusionnotes.com. And so you can go there and sign up for my email list. Uh, you can also email me directly at dan at fusionnotes.com. And then if you're interested in any of the online training materials or courses, you can go to notelaunchpad.com or fusionnotes.com slash courses to find everything you need there. Thank you, Dan. And to all my Foreclosure Fix family, thank you so much for tuning in today's episode. If the mission to help a million homeowners resonates with you, do us a favor, like, subscribe, share it with someone who you know it can help. 
Also, my new book called The Foreclosure Fix, 12 Proven Steps to Beat the Bank, Escape Foreclosure, and Turn Your Property into a Profitable Asset comes out this February. Yes, February 2024. I'm so excited. I, I just can't tell you all enough about what this podcast and what this community has done for me and how I am excited to continue the journey to help homeowners. Um, with that, y'all, I love you. God bless you. And we'll see you next time. Take care. The views and opinions on this podcast are for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. If you have a specific legal question, we highly recommend you contact a qualified legal professional.